Our scripture passage this evening is Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. can be found in your pew Bibles on page 118. It is the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. It's the Ten Commandments. And we're entering into the exposition of the Ten Commandments uh, in the Heidelberg Catechism in the evening. So uh, my goal is to read the law for us every night, but then also try to show us in the Scripture where this law is uh, best exemplified or an application of it so that we're not just hearing the same Scripture over and over and over again, but you're seeing the application of the law in various circumstances and situations, okay? Starting in verse 1. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it to the hands, hearts, and minds of his people. Also, along with our reading from Scripture this evening, we have the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 34. can be found in the back of your green Psalter hymnals on page 46. Question 92 says, what does the Lord say in his law? And it's a direct quotation from Exodus chapter 20, what we just read from God's word. So in order to not repeat myself, uh, you can see there the commandments are broken down. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and ten. Uh, straight quotation from Exodus 20, but if you look down at the bottom, you see also the other quotation where the law is found in scriptures, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 6 to 21. Question 93 says, how are these commandments divided? Answer, into two tables. The first has four commandments, teaching us what our relation to God should be. The second has six commandments, teaching us what we owe our neighbor. What does the Lord require in the first commandment? That I, not wanting to endanger my very salvation, avoid and shun all idolatry, magic, superstitious rites, 
in prayer to saints or to other creatures, that I sincerely acknowledge the only true God, trust Him alone, look to Him for every good thing, humbly and patiently love Him, fear Him, and honor Him with all my heart. In short, that I give up anything rather than go against His will in any way. Or what is idolatry? Idolatry is having or inventing something in which one trusts in place of or alongside of the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. That's why the teaching of the catechism. I'd like to begin this evening with a story told by one Timothy Munion. He says this, While living in Florida, I had several friends who worked cleaning rooms at a nationally known inn located directly on the white sands of the Gulf of Mexico. They spent their work breaks running barefoot in the sand. The problem was the inn required all employees to wear shoes at all times while working. I noticed the employees responded in one of two ways. The majority thought the rule restricted their freedom. The rooms had shag carpeting, delightful to bare toes, and just a few steps away lay the beach. To them, the rule to wear shoes was nothing more than employer harassment. But a minority of the employees looked at the rule differently. Sometimes late night parties would produce small pieces of broken glass. Occasionally a stick pin would be found hidden in the deep shag piles. Some knew the pain of skinning bare toes on the steel bed frame while making a bed. The minority saw the rules as protection, not restriction. Were God's laws written to make life miserable? Or were they written by a loving Heavenly Father who cares about His children? In our day and age, the first is more likely to be what you hear. There is a very specific reason why so many wish to see the Ten Commandments eradicated from our courthouses and courtrooms. But what I want us to see as we go through the Heidelberg Catechism's exposition of the law of God is specifically what they meant and intended by having this section be after the section on sin and on salvation and placed within the section of the Catechism on gratitude. That is that we are supposed to see the law of God as something given by a loving Heavenly Father who cares about His children. Like I've said, we've covered the section on sin, on salvation, and now we're moving into the section on gratitude or service. And this is what we're going to do tonight. Our theme is love for God drives out idols. Love for God drives out idols. Idols. And then we're going to see this love is revealed in dot, dot, dot. Number one, the dying of the old nature. Number two, the coming to life of the new. 
Now, there's a very specific reason why Lord's Day 32 talks about genuine repentance or conversion, and it discusses how one part is the dying away of the old self. We talked about the mortification of sin, right? And the other part is the coming to life of the new, or vivification, how we're coming to life now, how, how we're uh, being, uh, entering into walking with the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit, right? Because that's the way it wants us to look at the law of God. How is the law of God showing us how to die to our old nature and how to come to life in the new nature, the new nature given to us by true faith in Jesus Christ, granted to us by the Holy Spirit. So let's talk about it, but the first thing that we need to do is get some little introductory issues out of the way. We need to discuss a little bit about this first part of, of the catechism, how it breaks down the law, right? how it shows us what each commandment is, and how it says it's two tables, so on and so forth. And that's what we are discussing before we get to the first, the first commandment, that is. So the introductory issues that we need to discover are this. Number one, it's helpful for us to see that there's a preface to the law, right? So many hear the Ten Commandments like this. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not. That's how they hear the Ten Commandments, right? But historically, we need to contextualize ourselves because the first thing we read was this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So God tells them, I am your God. I am your Redeemer. I have saved you. And within this context of salvation, hear now the law, right? Hear now the law of God. So even in the Old Testament, we see that the, the context is redeemed, saved, salvation, law, right? And this is the same way that things are applied in the New Testament. Think about the book of Ephesians. You are elected. You are predestined. You were chosen before the foundation of the world. You have been saved by grace through faith. This not of yourselves, it is a gift of God that nobody should boast. And you have been placed here to do these great things. And then chapter 4, 5, 6 tells us what that looks like, right? Tells us how we're to live. Think about the book of Romans. The book of Romans tells us that we have been baptized in Christ that we have been redeemed, that we have been elected, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, that nothing can break us away from that. And then chapters 12, 13, 14, 15 tell us what does that look like, that you have this redemption, that you have this salvation, right? So the preface to the law is important for us to see because it tells us that the law God gave even to Israel was in the context of redemption. He says, I saved you. Now, this is the way you are to live in response to that salvation. But the other thing that we need to see here is the division of the law. Looks like I need another marker because this one's getting a little light. So, the law is being divided, right? The division of the law, it tells us here in Lord's Day 34, 
Question 93. How are these commandments divided? And then it states these two tables. So the first table is what we call uh, vertical, right? These are vertical realities. Because they describe our relationship to God. This is how we relate to God. This is how we are to love God. But the second table is horizontal. So second table. Horizontal. Because the second table of the law, commandments 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10, describe how we are to relate to our neighbors. And this is why it makes complete sense that Jesus Christ would say the two greatest commandments are love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. On the entire law and prophets, these two hang. If the first table isn't working, if we are not loving God as we're called to love God, the second table ain't going to work. If the second table isn't working, better look here. We're not loving God, right? So these are connected to each other. These are uh, intimately attached to each other. And I would even say that the fourth commandment, the commandment of uh, Sabbath keeping, is one that ties together the vertical reality of our relationship with God. We make that day holy and we put that, we put that day aside because God did and we, and we model that after him, right? But at the same time, it says, so that the aliens within your gates do not have to work. So there's a, there is a communal, horizontal uh, uh, value to that Sabbath command as well. But we'll get into that. We're, we're just dealing with the first command right now, right? Uh, and then the next thing that I want us to see are three uses of the law. There's three uses. I'm going to try a different marker. Ah, oh, yes, Beautiful. Beautiful. Three uses of the law. But now apparently I forgot how to, to write. And this is, def- this is definitely important for us, okay, to understand. The first use of the law is what is often called uh, the political or the civil use. And if you want to use the Latin term, you would say usus politicus, okay? Usus politicus. That's the civil use of the law. And when we think about the civil use of the law, we're thinking about the law's function in civil government as a restrainer of sin. There's a reason why in most civilized countries and nations that typically there are many things that align with God's law concerning thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not, so on and so forth. That's the civil use of the law, right? And it's actually appropriate for us as the church to prophetically condemn things in our nation that are contrary to the civil use of the law. So we are completely and utterly against abortion because it is murder. Thou shalt not murder. That's what God's law says. That's what abortion is. We're not for it. We're fighting against it. We want to see it end. We want to help those who have have done that, so on and so forth, right? Um, So that's, that's one use of the law, the civil use. The second use of the law is the, what is often called the theological use. The theological use of the law is typically what you think of when you think of the Ten Commandments. That is, that it teaches you of your sin, and it teaches you that you need Christ. That's the theological use of the law. 
that it's a pedagogue to tell us that we are sinners. We cannot live up to that. We cannot live up to this perfectly. None of us can. We've all fallen. And that's what we need the law for. We need the law to show us that we're sinners and that we need Christ. That's a theological use of the law. And then the last one is called the moral use of the law. Most reformers agree on the civil use of the law and the theological use of the law, but it's Calvin that really started to popularize and help us see the moral use of the law, which is mainly what is being given to us in the catechism's exposition of the Ten Commandments. It's the law of gratitude. The moral use of the law is the moral life of the believer is normed and shaped by God's law. The law is used as a guide for godly living. The response is not to earn, but out of gratitude for salvation that they've received. This is why the catechism has received the exposition of the law for after its section on sin and salvation. It's focusing us in on the third use of the law here, the moral use, or we could say the use uh, the, the third use uh, is the one of gratitude. So how we are called to live now, right, as Christians. How are we called to live now as Christians who have been saved and redeemed and who have the Holy Spirit within us? Where do we look for that kind of instruction? Well, we want to say that you can look to the law of God, not in a condemning way, but in a way that says, I seek to live according to God's law because I want God to be glorified because of the salvation that he's given me. It's a way to look at the law that is positioned already from salvation. Not to earn salvation, okay? From salvation, not to earn salvation. And then this is what I want us to do. Every time that we're going through the law, uh, each, each commandment, this is how we're going to interpret it, Okay? Number one is intention. What's the intention here? How am I to show my thanks to God and to my neighbor? Uh, Number two, then, is the negative expression. When we think of the Ten Commandments, we think typically of the negative expression, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. That's the negative expression, right? But what this use of the law is going to show us in this section on the gratitude of lives of service to, uh, of Christians is going to be actually the positive. The positive perspective of the law. Positive expression. Negative expression says, what does this require me to do for God or toward my neighbor? And putting off the old self according to the second use of the law. The positive expression says, what does this especially require of me in living the new life of thankfulness toward God or for my neighbor according to the third use of the law? There's a negative expression in, in, in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not. But automatically implied by that thou shalt not is also what are all the things that we should do, right? Christians should not be known for the things they don't do. They don't drink, they don't chew, they don't go with girls that do, Right? Christians should be known for what they do. And that's what's so beautiful about the Heidelberg Catechism's exposition of the law is that it's showing us what to do, not only what not to do. It's showing us the positive expression of of God's law. And to be honest with you, when you look 
at the way that the New Testament writers apply the law. This is how they apply it. The positive expression is all over. Now that we've done that, now that we've laid the groundwork, so to speak, <coughs> we can go into the, uh, the exposition of the first commandment. So the first thing that we're going to look at is the dying. Not they dying. The dying of the old nature. This is the negative expression of the law. The negative expression of the first commandment here, okay? So it says, what does the Lord require in the first commandment? Question 94. That I, not wanting to endanger my very salvation, avoid and shun all idolatry, magic, superstitions, rites, and prayer to saints or to other creatures. That's the negative expression of the law. That's what's telling us to die, to kill, to get rid of, the old nature to get rid of, right? The sin, the flesh that still remains, that's what we're being commanded to, to get rid of. This is the concept here of exclusion. Cry, uh, God in the first commandment is saying this. He's saying, forsake all others. If you're married, and that sounds familiar, in our marriage vows, this is part of it. I choose my wife, and by choosing my wife, I forsake all others. There would be nothing wrong if my wife were to be upset if I said, Honey, I know I took vows to forsake all others, but I wanted you to meet my, my other friend, and I hope you guys get along. It'll be wonderful. That's not okay, right? Because marriage is monogamous. Marriage is one man, one woman, and you're forsaking all others. So, even in the Scriptures... Typically in the Old Testament, God is seen as the husband and Israel is the wife. And so God says, idolatry is adultery. Idolatry is adultery. And this is where Israel got it wrong. This is where we can take the first commandment and look at the scriptures and say, you were said, you were told, do not go after other gods. Do not go after the Baals and the Asheroths and, and the Dagons and all of those. Don't go after them. And what happens? All the bad things that come upon Israel are because they sought after the other gods. And they even thought to themselves, we can have these gods and Yahweh. That's not how it works. That's not how our covenant God works. He says, I am a jealous God. And I demand exclusive relationship rights. He says, all or nothing. That's what our God says. That's what this first commandment means. The, the commandment that says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. And therefore, the negative expression of the first commandment tells us that we should avoid. And flee or shun, avoid and shun anything that would seek to take the place of God in our lives. 
And it gives a very appropriate list for its day and age. Idolatry. This is the time of Reformation. People were bowing down to icons and images, magic, superstitious rites. People thought that if they could only have part of Joseph's shoes, part of Mary's clothes, a bone from the finger of, of Peter, the, pro, the, the, the apostle, and then prayer to saints and to other creatures. These are appropriate expressions of, of, of having something else besides God that takes God's place, right? Or that even comes alongside God. We're not... We're not we're not praying to the saints. We're asking the saints to pray for us to God. Why? Pray to God. Right? God is not saying here that other gods actually exist, for we know that other gods are nothing. We are told that they're wood that are used to make food and then worship. That doesn't make any sense. Therefore, this warning is not fear about other powers beside him, but rather God is concerned for us. To give to something else, worship or adoration, what is to be for God alone, ends in our destruction. It ends in our destruction. But we all know the idols of our day maybe are not bales and Asherah poles. Maybe they're not magic, superstitious rites, prayer to saints and other creatures. But they're the same thing, just with a new paint job. Our idols today in, in America's affluency, money, power, reputation, sex, spouses, children, political parties, our own talents, strength, abilities, you name it, whatever it is, if you're placing your hope or any part of your hope in that Rather than God, it's no different than Baal. It's no different than the Asherah poles. It's an idol, and we're called to forsake and flee. Forsake and flee. This is a call to examine our lives and ask ourselves, is there anything in our lives that we seek after that takes the place of God, that we look for that takes the place of God? I got a young baby at home right now, sometimes sleep becomes an idol for me. And I think to myself, if I only got enough sleep. Right? We have to examine our hearts. John Calvin said, the human heart is an idol factory. That's true. But as Christians, we've been forgiven of all our sins, and we've been free to seek to live free of idols for God's sake. So, this is this is careful, and this is very good information here, but it says something very important. It says <laughs> here at the end, idolatry is having or inventing something in which one trusts in place of or alongside of the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. This is important for us because maybe many of us will think to ourselves, we have not put anything in place of God. That's not happened for us. But maybe we have put something 
alongside God or beside God. And God says, I don't need help. I am sufficient for you. That you have all the benefits of Christ. You need nothing else. If you find that you are in need, go to Christ. Do not go to idols. Do not go to comforts. Right? So let's look at the second part. The second part is the coming to life of the new. So if the dying of the old nature is the negative expression of the law, the coming to life of the new is the positive expression of the law. We're killing our old self and we are coming to newness of life. This is the part of the law that is not directly expressed in the text. It's implied. If there's a negative expression, then the positive expression is implied. The positive expression here given to us in question and answer 94 is this. What does the Lord require in the first commandment? That I sincerely acknowledge the only true God, trust him alone, look to him for every good thing, humbly and patiently love him, fear him, and honor him with all my heart. So this is the positive call to action. Uh, We do not only flee from idolatry, we do not only flee from idolatry, but we flee to the living God. We flee to the living God. Anybody who deals with people who have addictions will tell you it's not good enough to tell them that they should stop doing that. You have to replace those habits and those things with positive expressions, positive good things, right? So that's what we're doing here. We're, we're not only being told, get away from idols, but we're being instructed, go to God. Flee to the living God to give our whole heart, all our trust, whole, full, total. These are the kind of words that are being used here, right? sincerely acknowledge the only true God, trust him alone, look to him for every good thing, humbly and patiently love him, fear him, honor him with all my heart. This is all about the disposition of our heart toward God. This expresses itself in outward action, but if you remember the words of Jesus, out of the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? So to know, to trust, expect from him, love, fear, glorify, these all point to the heart's disposition, to what our heart is doing. Because that's what the catechism is after, the heart of the law, the spirit of the law. These words also speak to the complete nature of devotion that God demands from us. Look at the words, alone, only, whole, forsaking all creatures. This is a total command of devotion. This is an obedient love that God desires for us. It's not enough that God simply wants us to forsake idols. He wants us to have him, to have all of him, to come to him for everything. People of God, what we see in the first commandment is an invitation. An invitation given by our God who has redeemed us. And he is saying to you, 
forsake all others because to pursue and to give and to adore and to worship anything that is not me will end in your destruction. Forsake all others and come to me. The only true God. Trust me alone. Look to me for every good thing. Humbly, patiently, love me, fear me, honor me with all your heart. And you won't regret it. You will not be disappointed. As we go through these commandments, I hope that you will see the beauty of that positive expression and that you would see how much love our covenant God has for us in these laws and that you would be able to see ways in which your life as a sinner saved by grace can begin to strive after and align with the law of God, not in order to be saved, but because you've been saved, seeking to live a grateful life of service to Christ, our wonderful Savior, who died on the cross for our sins and was raised to, di- to, to life three days later, that we may be in him and have union with him and have all the benefits of salvation in him. Amen. Lord, we thank you for these words in your law. We pray that we would be able to continue to grow in our knowledge and understanding of it. That you, by your spirit, may work mightily in our lives. That we may grow in godliness and holiness. That our minds may be renewed. That we may be conformed to the image of your son. That we may seek to live lives of service in such a way that people see our good deeds and give glory to you. That we may adorn the gospel that we proclaim with our mouths with the lives that you have called us to lead. That your name may be hallowed in all the earth. And that people at the ends of the world may come to know your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.